The Elk Talk podcast is brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, ensuring the future of elk, other wildlife, their habitat, and our hunting heritage. To become a member, go to rmef.org. Welcome to the Elk Talk podcast with Randy Newberg and Corey Jacobson, presented by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. The goal is what little you and I know about elk hunting, we share with people. I've got an elk doing it's like 120 yards away. What do I do? First off, the thought would never cross my mind when an elk's being 120 yards away to call anybody on a cell phone. <laughs> All elk. All the time. Only elk. Only elk. Well, it's us having conversations. So we usually go down some rabbit holes, but if you hunt with Corey Jacobson, you will find the landscape is full of rabbit holes. We're just going to make this up as we go. And you look at it like, oh, that's a target-rich environment. But if you're trying to single one out, a solo target there is much easier to go into than a a big group. We record everything, so there's no BS and no lying, no faking it with us. (laughs) Did we hit the record button? I forgot to hit the record (laughs) button. If you want to know something about elk hunting, this probably isn't the podcast to listen to. <laughs> Should we give them a list of all the other podcasts wow. where they might learn something? <laughs> Corey Jacobson, how in the confound cat hair are you today? Well, if I found myself confounded in cat hair, I would be much worse than I am. So that means I'm doing great, I guess. <laughs> Obviously, you don't listen to Hank Williams Sr. I, I don't that, remember hearing the confounded cat hair, no. That, that's a line in one of his songs. Huh. So, and if you're like me and you stood there in front of Grandma's phonograph when you were <laughs> six years old and the only... <laughs> She had two albums, Hank Williams Sr.'s Greatest Hits and Johnny Horton. So, (laughs) anyhow, I don't know why that came out. It just, it came out. I'm sorry, man. That's that's from uh, Please Make Up Your Mind. Will you please make up your mind what in the confounded cat cat hair you you want me to do? do. Yeah. There just ain't nobody knows what I go through. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> what the confounded cat hair you want me to do? Yeah. <laughs> that is awesome. I'm See? Gonna, I'm going right, to right. listen to that one now. Hey, if you listen to Hank Williams Sr., you're all right in my book. Uh, I like Hank. Yeah. Anyhow. Absolutely. Not that I can sing worth a dang, but I can listen. <laughs> and, uh, that was back when I was a kid before my hearing went to heck. So, But, uh. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm doing, doing great. Thanks for Good. asking. All right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know how many people came up to me at the Total Archery Challenge in Big Sky last weekend and said, I hope you guys keep just going off script. That That's half the fun. I'm driving down the road. I never know what you guys are going to talk about. Well, neither do we. So we're all on the same page here. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, just, just, told them. <laughs> just before Randy hit record, he said, do you have anything you want to talk about? And I said, ah, nothing specific. We can figure something out. So here we go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let, let's kind of, you know, if this was the news, yeah, the rest of the story by Paul Harvey, <laughs> uh, we kind of left them hanging last week because we, we did a podcast before you were going to do the elk calling contest. I think you were in the pro division, weren't you? I was, yeah. Yeah. And 
your daughter Jesse was in the women's division and Sam was in the men's division? Yeah, he was uh, supposed to be in the youth division, but they didn't have enough youth contestants to create a category, so they bumped him up into the men's division. Well, I know how Jesse did because I got to announce the winners at the when I did the MC thing, and then I saw the big smile on her face. <laughs> she just she just added to her college funding account, I think. She when she walked she walked off the stage with her great big cardboard check, and she uh-huh. said. I can quit my summer job now and just play the rest of the summer. <laughs> and my eyes got big and she's like, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, so she won the women's division. She did. And it was uh, the finals. There were four women and Jesse lost her very first bracket, which mm. means she got sent to the consolation bracket and she had to work her way all the way back up. She had to beat the lady who beat her the first time. And then she had to call twice against the girl that was undefeated in the bracket. She beat her once, but then since she hadn't lost, she had to call again and beat her a second time. Oh. And seven judges, and the final score was four to three. So it was it was close, but she yeah. pulled it off. Yeah. And for anyone who doesn't know, the judges sit behind a panel, so they have no idea. They just know it's caller one or caller two. Yep. So, wow. And uh, I know Bo Brooks won yeah. because he came, he came and handed us uh, that night at the fundraiser, <laughs> handed us his his winning he, – he made it out of wood, a bugle yeah. tube made out of wood. Yeah, they just launched a new call company at Riven? the Riven – Ribbon, ribbon, yep. okay. Ribbon, huh. so I guess it's a, a wood term, woodworking hmm. term. But uh, yeah, they've got uh, production bugle tubes that are 100% made out of wood. Wow. And you want to talk about a natural sound, because that's always been, you know, the plastic tubes. It's hard to, yeah. hard to get rid of that plastic sound, but the wood tube sounds incredible. Huh. They're not cheap. Wow. They're not. They're not for the faint of heart. Sure. <laughs> but they do sound good. And uh, speaking of not cheap, you know, he donated it back. His winning tube, the one that he used, and I, mm-hmm. and I thought it'd be a nice gesture to buy it and give it back to him. You know, he donated it, and I thought, well, it's going yeah. to a good cause. It's going to the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. So yeah. I. Uh, you know, they retail for about 300 or $350. So yeah. I thought, well, we probably aren't going to get it for less than four or 500 So I was prepared for that. But uh, just before we hit $1,000, I said, nope, I'm out. And then you, you, uh, as the MC, I, yeah. yeah, I said, Corey, I'll split the price with you. Yeah. So that gave me a little bit more uh, bidding confidence and uh, <laughs> a couple more bids into it. And I looked over and the person who was flagging for me was in front of me. And there was a person right behind me flagging every time, you know, that the price would go up. And I thought, am I bidding against myself? Like, are they both flagging every time I raise my hand? <laughs> and then uh, come to find out Bo's dad, Casey, was over there. Uh, he wasn't even bidding. He had already told the guy, I'm not going home without that bugle tube. So <laughs> once I realized that, I thought, well, I'll milk him for a few hundred more bucks and I'll raise yeah. the bid up, but I don't want to get stuck with a $2,000 bill for a bugle tube. So no. we left him with that and money yeah. went to a good cause and the bugle tube went to the Brooks family where it belongs. So Yeah, cool. Well, 
there's that report, I guess, right? Yeah. Where did you did you end up somewhere in there? Yep, I uh, I got second to Bo, and this is oh, Bo, okay. Bo won back to back. So he and I called against each other in the championship round, and uh, he won hmm. again, fair and square. As I was sitting up there on the stage listening to him, I thought, you know, even if I practiced really hard. I don't know if I could make some of the sounds that he's making right now. He's uh, he's huh. one of a kind. He's you know, a young kid. I don't know how old he is, 25, 26, something like that, maybe mm-hmm. a couple years older. But he uh, he's the future of of our industry and especially of elk calling. And, yeah. you know, when you see something like that, it uh, gives us hope for the future. Yeah, there's always there's guy. always people that come and go that are just, you know, they're, they're in it for themselves. They're... You know, their ego's bigger than their talent pool. And mm-hmm. uh, in this case, it's uh, quite the opposite. So it's refreshing yeah. to see. And I'm I'm always excited. I I, uh, I think I'm one of his biggest fans. So getting yeah. beat by Bo well, is, uh, I, I can live with it. Well, when I was talking to him before the contest, I thought all these kids were coming up to us because they wanted a dilly bar. <laughs> Nope, they wanted to talk to Bo. Yeah. So, and he was so generous with his time. He yeah. was like just smiling, happy, taking pictures with all these kids. And then he'd say, oh, and if you want some ice cream, go see this old gray-haired fart right here. So I'd walk <laughs> walk him over to the cooler and let him pick cherry or chocolate. Oh, so, man. But, you, hey, didn't have, you didn't have any mint dilly bars? No, they didn't have any. Well, I'm I, glad I didn't come see you then. I know. They tried to pawn yeah, they tried to pawn off butterscotch on me. Mm. I'm like, look, you got to be a communist to eat butterscotch. <laughs> I ain't doing that. You just, just get out of here. I can't even believe you guys sell butterscotch. I, no, I might I have was, to. I was just going to say I would have taken butterscotch over cherry and chocolate. Mint would be my first choice, but. Well, my apologies to you, yeah. Corey. I, I implied that you're not all right there. So, but. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm always a little bit suspicious of anyone who asks for butterscotch over chocolate or cherry. I'm, I'm even so biased that I'm also a little, I, if someone asks for cherry, I kind of look at them a second time. Like, all right, I guess so. Yeah. So anyhow, next year I'm going to have to bring 400. I oh, ran yeah. out. You did I ran run out. out. Yeah, yeah. So even with all the rainy and cold weather and still ran out of dilly bars. I I think people are of my opinion that, you know, there's never too bad a weather for ice cream. That's that's my opinion. I, uh, I made the decision as of last weekend that I'm cutting out on ice cream here for, uh, between now and elk season. So really, well, I'll make it up for you. <laughs> I'll make it. Up. I'll make it up as soon as we get out of the elk woods. I guarantee you that. But uh, are, are we going to talk about anything related to elk hunting? You suppose? Hmm. Haven't we been? Uh, well, kind of. Yeah. Kinda. You know, we got. What's with the flurry of emails we got from South Dakota in the last week? They must. Did they their just, draws they must, must have just come out. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm very happy for these people, but they're asking us some pretty precise questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the, the fact that we didn't know the draws came out would probably allude to the fact that we didn't put in because we can't put in. Right. So residents South, only. Yeah, South Dakota. I, and I get it. I'm not. This isn't a complaint. It's just, you know, South Dakota does not give any non-resident elk tags. So the odds of you and I ever getting a chance to hunt South Dakota elk is somewhere right at zero, I believe. Yep. Uh, <laughs> so, but... 
the the general rules that you know to answer their their specific questions in a general sense would be that it's probably a lot like hunting northeast wyoming or southeast montana you know expect the elk to be very transient and move a lot uh there's such limited amount of tags they give in south dakota that hunting pressure will be a factor but maybe not as high of a factor as you would expect in you know an over-the-counter unit in colorado or general units in montana idaho wyoming uh but other than that it's you know what season are you hunting them what's their primary need get after it yep so uh I, <laughs> we are going to have a whole lot of specific info just because we we don't get a hunt there yeah. and uh as much time as we waste on scouting and e-scouting we don't waste time on states that we can't hunt <laughs> yeah i i don't have a, in fact i don't think i have a single waypoint on my go hunt map in south dakota no i know i don't Nothing. Nothing personal. I mean, I'd trust me, if you guys had let non-residents apply, I'd be applying there. But, you know, there you're talking about non-migratory elk instead of migratory elk. So they're going to disperse more horizontally than they are vertically. They're going to be less respondent to weather events. You know, they're just going to be like, well, I don't need to get out of here. It's not like we're going to die up here at 4,500 feet or <laughs> seven, you know, 6,800 feet or whatever the Black Hills are. Uh, so, and knowing that there's a lot of private land intermixed with all that, they're probably going to use some of that private land as sanctuary. Yeah. But these, you know, uh, kind of like uh, I, I had a, a rifle tag in eastern Montana. It was quite a while ago, but I was astounded at how transient those elk are. The herd that I ended up shooting my bull out of the day, or maybe it was two days before, I saw it about eight miles away. And like, really? You guys went eight miles, and thank goodness you crossed this public land because now I get to shoot one of you. Uh, so my point to that would be, when they are that transient, just because they're on private today, don't give up on them. Elk Talk Podcast is brought to you by Go Hunt Insider. You hear us talk about it, that's because we use it a lot. Go to GoHunt.com to get the best information available to the self-guided hunter. I'm talking the best draw odds, strategy articles, amazing e-scouting tools that we've helped design, online and mobile maps, and the best gear shop in the industry. Sign up for Insider using promo code ELKTALK and get $50 of credit in the Go Hunt gear shop. Go to GoHunt.com and sign up now. The Elk Talk podcast is also brought to you by Mountain Ops, making outdoor energy and performance nutrition to make you a stronger and healthier elk hunter. They have a full line of hunting-related supplements, including meal replacement shakes, multivitamins, pre-workout fuel, and post-workout recovery. And my favorite, their new performance protein bars that, by the way, are packed with 270 calories and 20 grams of protein, but contain less than 6 grams of sugar. Visit mountainops.com to learn more and to order, and be sure to use the promo code ELKTALK to save on your next order. So, yep. No, and that's, I mean, there, there's usually a draw to the private, and it mm-hmm. is usually the sanctuary. But mm-hmm. it's not always the best feed, and it's not always the water. So, 
Yeah. And it, uh, they'll very often, it. yeah, very often because it's uh, uh, agriculture, it's not good bedding cover. Yeah. So the bedding cover very often will be on nearby public. Yeah. So, and they'll go there because of the water on the agriculture and the good feed. But then when it's time to bed down, they move up into the foothills or off of that where they've got a little better cover. So yeah. we found that last year in Colorado on my hunt. It was 70% private in the unit I was hunting and 30% public. And man, the elk were socked into the private. They just, mm-hmm. I mean, they, they knew. They went there every day. They came off of the private. They watered, they fed a little bit, and then as soon as it started getting daylight, they moved back up onto the private. And they didn't go far onto You could hear them bugling. But mm-hmm. uh, as they would bed down, you know, we were able to call a handful of them off of the private and onto the oh. public. But uh, we found our best bet was finding the little corners of public access and getting up in there and catching them as they came through from the main public onto the private. And then there were a couple corners where they'd actually come through public uh, not realizing exactly where the fence line was and there's not a <laughs> fence line in a lot of it so they would uh, they, they did some good corner crossing and crossed onto public <laughs> uh, yeah as we uh, all know corner crossing is uh, is a dangerous thing so yeah I, I well today is june 28th i think that the in that corner crossing case i think that the landowner has until july 1st which is a Saturday. Yeah. So <laughs> I think he's got till Friday to decide if he's going to appeal yep. to the 10th Circuit. It's just uh, two so. days from now when we're recording this. So by the time yeah. this, this displays, we'll know uh, whether he appealed it or not. Okay. So you've brought up a topic, corner crossing, that you can't <laughs> do without technology, right? Yeah. So here in our office, we're in like a four-week discussion, debate, whatever you want to call it, about technology and what's it doing to hunting, what's it doing to how agencies have to respond. Is it good? Is it bad? Is it somewhere in between? But, you know, because I got to raise the plan for it and yeah adapt i I was telling the guys i said look you guys are too young to remember this but you know that nice 2019 ford raptor i have that'll go just about anywhere well my dad drove a 1969 two-wheel drive gmc with four on the floor and we got stuck at least once on the way there and at least once on the way back no matter where we were going his his joke always was well it's not a hunting trip until we're stuck <laughs> so you if you want to really go wide on technology changes you can get way wide on this rather than just the little things about our handheld gps oh, cell phone man. devices yeah you know a lot of people want to focus on equipment and focus on that and and i get it all of this technology i i <laughs> i use it all yeah. i you know my first outcome it's kind of like preference points and bonus points. Even if we don't agree with it, if we want to play the game, we have to yeah. we have to participate. Mm-hmm. And with mm-hmm. technology, you know, it's, yeah, it, it might be fun to go out one season and say, I'm not going to scout at all. And I'm going to go out wearing my jeans and my wool jacket and, you know, take my compass out or whatever. But at the end of the day, technology is here for us to use and to benefit us. 
And yeah. I, I've got more to say on that, but I don't want to. I don't want my punchline to come in front of the story here. So oh. you go. You go ahead, and then uh, I'll, I'll share right. some thoughts. Well, we we got into all these things, and what have agencies done, or whatever they had to do to regulate or legislate, whatever you want to call it, how technology is impacting hunter success. Because it gets down to a basic equation that a herd of this size can only withstand so much surplus taken. There's only going to provide so much surplus to be taken. And if you start eating into that, you're, you're headed you know, into the death spiral. So, they have to decide, here's how many we think can be taken. And if success rates keep growing and growing and growing, we have two options. Either we lower the number of tags and the amount of, of opportunity, or we come up with some limits on technology that's increasing success rates. Or like Utah did this year, right? 2023 was the big change in Utah. Yeah, They said, we're, we're just having unbelievable success rates in having the the center fire rifle season for nine <laughs> days in the end of September. If we want to provide more opportunity, we got to cut that some and we'll move more of those tags to rifle hunts in October, rifle hunts in November, and archery hunts in December. Mm. So that's an example of where a state said, you know, the, <laughs> you got to make a change. <laughs> yeah. You know, the equation is pretty fixed. There's not a lot of variables. It's, and so, uh, we've been talking about this in our office and now every time something comes up, we're in the debate of, well, is that technology? Yep. Sure is. <laughs> yep. In so, fact, yeah, yesterday we got in an argument about technology for fishing. <laughs> wow. I thought Michael was going to kick us because he's into fishing. <laughs> but, yeah. So, it, it, so does tech, that's, I guess that's my question. Does technology make a difference in success rates? I believe it does. Okay. So I'm on the Idaho Fishing Game website here, mm -hmm. and I'm looking at the 10-year elk harvest, mm -hmm. and I'm just counting here. So in the last 10 years, would you say that technology has advanced in the last 10 years? Yes, I would. So do you think we're more technologically advanced now than we were in 2015? Yes, I do. So success rates have dropped since mm -hmm. 2015 in Idaho. There, 2015 was a peak, and since then, it has declined. Yep. Why is that? Because it's only one of multiple variables, right? Elk distribution, like in Montana, our success rates, even though our elk herds have grown, they've mostly grown or become inaccessible due to intense hunting pressure. So they're in sanctuary areas. We have predation that has moved things around. We, we got a lot of people, especially during the COVID period, who said, oh, I'm going to go give this a try. Yeah. Well, you, you bring, if you want to call it, you know, uh, inexperienced elk hunters who've never done it before and you you see a bump of those, well, their success rates are going to be really, really low, regardless of what technology you put in their hand, because they just haven't been, you know, to the school of elk hunting hard knocks. So that's going to 
probably do some so of that. If thought. we're looking at a percentage, you know, with all these new hunters, I could see the percentage, the success rate percentage dropping. But even with these newbies, wouldn't the number of elk harvested increase? I mean, if you get so many more new hunters out there, you would think that they would luck into a few elk and and contribute to the existing Mm -hmm. uh, veteran hunters that are there. But that's not been the case in Idaho. Yeah. And that's always been my argument, you know, when Mm -hmm. they were talking about you know, lighted knocks and mechanical broadheads in Idaho. We, yeah. we we wouldn't use them. We would not go for any new technology because of the argument that, hey, if success rates go up, we're going to have to cut seasons. We're going to have to, you know, go to a limited entry type of a scenario. And so Idaho has always maintained that very conservative approach on technology. Yep. And then the legislature or the legislate, a legislator went around behind the back of the Fishing Game Commission and forced that technology to be legal in Idaho. Um, so we do have a, mm-hmm. a little bit of technology that's been advanced, but I just, I haven't seen, you know, in the last 20 years, a, a real change in success rates at all. No, I, but... And like, like you if, said... If, Technology all the may other- be improving it, but predators and hunting pressure and private land access and all of that is probably decreasing it. So it's staying right. the same overall. If it wasn't for technology advancing, we'd probably see a, a drastic decrease. Or yeah. is it the technology that's causing the hunting pressure and the public land access to become more of an issue? Uh, there you go. I mean, you know, think about... Well, I, I think I've said this before is when Google Earth came along, I am like, are you kidding me? <laughs> this th- this will really work. And with my old dial up modem, it didn't work that good. But then I then I got to some copper wires twisted together and it worked a little better. And now, you know, we get to fiber. It's like I can fly over someplace, whether it's Google Earth or Gohan or whatever. I, I so back in the day when that happened, when Google Earth came along, all of a sudden my maps became obsolete. Yeah. And then, you know, you look at what we have today with surface ownership and everything else. There aren't any hidey holes anymore. There are, there are no secret spots. Nope. There's going to be hunting pressure on just about every piece of public land that's out there. there there's no secret spots. The only thing that is keeping people out of there is distance and topography right and you know, i mean it's, it's not a secret they're looking at it going i bet there's elk back in there but is it worth the 14 yeah. mile trek <laughs> and the 4,000 foot <laughs> elevation gain no i can probably find elk without putting in that work but for somebody that wants to put in that work they know where it's at and yeah there might not be a lot of competition in there but there's a lot of people that know about it and yeah. And, you know, have there been changes to season types and season lengths and season structures? And does the harvest success include only bulls or bulls and cows? And so there's there's an awful lot of variables in there. But I think as a general rule, agencies are faced with the issue of we we can try to put more elk on the mountain. And we try to do that. And the number, like the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation tries to do that. But 
you've got all the competing forces of development and winter range and, you know, invasive weeds and bad forest management and all these other things against it. And we know that a lot of the harvest pressure, hunting pressure, gets put on public land. And elk are smart. (laughs) <laughs> you know i don't want to they are yeah i don't want to die of lead poisoning <laughs> i'm going down here yeah i got to cross the highway and i got to live around some farm tractors or something but you know what my odds of dying of lead poisoning are a whole lot less <laughs> so our distribution of elk has changed dramatically as technology has allowed us to find every possible little corner yeah and then we've got this thing called the internet right mm where we can share information like never before. You know, how, how many people back when Jack Ward Thomas first wrote his book, Elk and Elk Ecology, actually read that 600-page book? Probably not very not many. Lot. But now, how many go do a, a Google search? What do elk well, eat in Wyoming in October? Well, here's something telling is you used to be able to buy that book, for mm-hmm. uh, a song and a dance. Right. And now you can't even find it. And if you do, it's like $400 because right. you and I mentioned it on a podcast one time. Yeah. And, and so the, it's sold out. Yeah. The sharing of information yeah. uh, across everything in our life. Technology has impacted every part of our life. And those don't, it's not like there's a wall in the hunting space that says all these tools of technology in our daily life somehow stop at this boundary of hunting versus not hunting. There are a few, like when drones, you know, handheld, you know, consumer drones became very popular, instantly the agencies were like, no, 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 (laughs) which I think every hunter agrees with. And then you get to this thing called trail cameras. Hmm. Boy, no, that's a controversial one. But what did Idaho, Nevada, or not Idaho, uh, Utah, Arizona, and Nevada do in the last couple of years? Got rid of them. Well, at least during season. Yeah. So this isn't elk, but this is deer. Uh, I have the data about Arizona's archery deer seasons. The success rate for their over-the-counter tags in 2012 was 4.5%. In 2020, it was almost 15%. And it's been a steady line of increase. So what they do, they put caps on those. You know, then you combine that with a drought. And now animals have to accumulate in in tighter groups and make them more vulnerable during periods of drought. When you add the technology, all of a sudden it's like, whoa, (laughs) we're almost as successful with the bow as we are with the rifle. So. Uh, I, I don't think there's any answers, Corey. I, I think it's so in my mind, it's so case by case that the agency just got to try their best to keep up with it and say, how do we try to keep the harvest at some percentage so that we're not damaging the herds? Elk Doc podcast is also brought to you by the university of elk hunting. The University of Elk Hunting was founded by Corey Jacobson. It is now part of the suite of courses out there at OutdoorClass.com. So if you want to sign up for the University of Elk Hunting and save some money, go out to OutdoorClass.com and use Elk Talk as your promo code and you'll get 20% off. 
But more importantly, you're going to get the University of Elk Hunting. You're going to get other courses from Outdoor Class taught by Corey Jacobson, Remy Warren, Randy Newberg, John Barclow, Hank Shaw, Jamie Teagan, and on and on and on. There you have it. Outdoorclass.com will get you the University of Elk Hunting. Just make sure you use promo code ELKTALK and save 20%. Yeah, and I think, you know, there, there's a lot that goes into that percentage. Um you know, when, when we see a, say, let's keep the math easy, a 10% success rate. So mm-hmm. say we have a thousand elk and we know that 20%, you know, success rate is where we need to be to maintain the herd. Let's say there's an 80% recruitment there. Mm-hmm. Well, when we see a 10% success rate, there's a formula that agencies use because there's going to be a lot more animals killed than right. just those 10%, just those hundred elk that hunters put their tag on. You know, yes. I think that they, you know, in some States, they double that mm. based on animals that are lost. You know, so yep. they figure for every animal that's killed, there's one that is shot and not recovered that dies, that succumbs to its injuries. So, you know, 10% success rate translates to an 80% recruitment right there. Then you take into account vehicle collisions. You take into account winter kill. So, I mean, it's a very complex, you know, you get a hard winter. It pushes the animals down lower, which pushes them closer to roads. So now the road, you know, conflict between automobiles increases on a winter that's already hard where the animals are going to die from starvation. It concentrates the animals. So predators are more proficient during those years. So on a hard winter, you've got vehicle mortality, you've got uh, starvation, yeah. you've got predation, all of yeah. that. It's not just, hey, these elk aren't getting enough food, so a couple of the calves are going to die. There's a right. lot more that goes into that mortality in that equation. And so it's, you know, you look at a 10% success rate during a hunting season, and that's just one of the factors that they're using to manage those animals. And that's why yeah. hunting is so important because that's really the only factor we can control. We can't control hard winters and predation, you know, as badly as we want to say we can control predators, (laughs) we can't. I mean, we can can influence it a little bit, but we aren't controlling predators anymore. We we just, our hands are tied there. So, I mean, the only thing we can do as hunters to make sure that we have a sustainable population of elk is look at harvest rates, but that's certainly not the only thing. We have a hard winter, and it might be necessary to adjust harvest for hunting because of mm-hmm. all the other factors that have contributed to where the elk population is. Yeah. When hunting harvest is such a small percentage of the total, yeah. or maybe it's a larger percent, whatever percentage it is, it's not the only thing, as you yeah. pointed out. So to try change the outcomes or the trends of that herd with all the other things and the only tool you have to do it with is hunting, you end up with some more dramatic increases or decreases in opportunity because if that's 30% of the mortality and you're trying to adjust for the whole 100%, (laughs) (laughs) you know, you're having to leverage that 30% pretty hard in how you make changes in direction so yep. uh that's keeps me going back to if we double the number of elk on the mountain it's gonna double the amount of opportunity yep i know yeah, that if there's twice probably, as many elk we can sustain 
twice the harvest success, or yeah. if harvest success stays the same, we can sustain twice the number of elk that can be harvested, which increases opportunity for yeah. all hunters. So yeah, it's yeah. just bottom line, we've got to have more habitat. We've got to have more population. Yeah. Because, you know, New Mexico got rid of muzzleloader scopes last year. Now they're like Nevada where it's open sites. Why? Because they were realizing that they're having a, <laughs> uh, what started out as a primitive season, yeah. uh, primitive weapon season, all of a sudden they were having harvest rates equal to, or in some hunts, exceeding the rifle harvest rate. Well, like, yeah, whoa, they're whoa, putting whoa, them whoa. during the middle of the rut with a scoped weapon that can shoot four <laughs> or 500 yards. Yeah. And it's going <laughs> to exceed the harvest rates for a, a rifle hunt that happens post-rut, even if you can mm-hmm. shoot seven or 800 yards. So yeah, it's just... Everything is, you know, I think the the benefits and the advantages that technology is bringing are also bringing disadvantages and hardships. You know, you can shoot an elk at 800 mm-hmm. yards with a rifle. Well, that that sanctuary across the canyon isn't a sanctuary anymore. The elk know that. <laughs> no. So now they're going to go farther in or they're going to go to private land where they're inaccessible and they're going to live, which makes it harder for us to hunt. I mean, yeah. all of these things, and, and we're seeing it. We're seeing technology being stripped away, like you mentioned in New Mexico. Uh, Idaho's always been traditional muzzleloader. Not only can you yeah. not shoot a scope, you've got to shoot a, you know, I don't know all the terminology, but you've got to shoot an old traditional muzzleloader. Yeah. That uh, yep. Ignition systems, powder systems, you guys in Colorado have kept that. Yeah. Pretty primitive. So that allows those people who want to hunt with that method to continue hunting with that method and not have to worry that, you know, success rates are going to go way up or it's going to become easier. And now you you add in the fact that the elk are less accessible and you're hunting with these primitive weapons still. I would imagine that, you know, where technology hasn't advanced, the success rates have probably dropped. Yeah. Yeah. And... You know, I had talked about my dad's 69 GMC. Well, then there's these things called ATVs, <laughs> side-by-sides. Side. You know, there are people getting, it. it's way easier for Uncle Puscut to jump in his <laughs> side-by-side <laughs> and drive up that trail or drive, jump on his ATV and drive up that trail to get way the heck back in there. But if you told the big old boy, hey, you got to walk back in there? <laughs> And he ain't getting very far. How big a boy are you? <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> so, I mean, that's taken a much further step back on this technology issue. A lot of people want to get right down to the, you know, illuminated scopes or, you know, this type of bow or this type of device. It's a much bigger discussion than just yeah. that stuff. Well, and, and I, I think, think you mentioned it, you know, that... It's it's not just gear. It's not just right. a scope. It's not just vehicles. It's, right. you know, technology is advanced on vehicle access, on uh, gear, on weapon proficiency. But mm-hmm. maybe the most important one is the information advancement. Mm-hmm. You know, right. and that's, there's, there's all of those different components. So you take away scopes in New Mexico, 
well, they still have side-by-sides that can go straight up a mountain. They still have, you know, all this gear that can keep you out there for a week without getting uncomfortable. They still have the sharing of information. So, you know, yeah, it does separate those people who want to shoot an elk during the the end of the rut with a muzzleloader at 400 yards. Now they have to get into 200 yards. But that information's there for them as well. Mm Mm-hmm. No, it, that's why I said, you know, the internet is, <laughs> it changed the entire game. Because back when there were three main magazines, right? There was Outdoor Life, Field and Stream, Sports of Field. That was where a lot of people got their information. Yep. And then along came TV shows. Remember that thing called TNN, the Man. Nashville Network? No, I don't remember that one. Oh, okay. That's where hunting TV first started down Did in the southeast. TNN? TNN, like Tennessee, you know, like the Nashville Network. Yeah, TNN. Yeah. Yeah. So then all of a sudden you end up with multiple TV distribution platforms. Well, then along comes YouTube. And then along comes podcasts. It's like... What's next? Well, some people say next with social media, but you see me. I If someone asked me to do something on Instagram, I got to hand my phone to them and say, here you go. I, <laughs> so, But I guess that's next. Uh, I don't know if that's sharing of information. I got my own opinions about what that is, but I'm going to save it for myself. But, uh, <laughs> so if I ever have a blow up my Facebook and blow up my Instagram party, will you be there? <sighs> yeah. I'd be okay. there, but okay. I'm just wondering how people are going to be able to watch you cook and eat wolf meat if we don't have social media. I don't know how they are. I'm going to have to go back to writing articles and starting my own magazine or it's something. It's just not the same. You can't see the same facial expression as your first bite of wolf meat. Uh, but, I mean, there there is no doubt that information sharing in our in every aspect of our lives, right? Nope. When my wife decides, well, my husband's not very handy and he refuses to fix the dryer, she goes and Googles video how to replace element in dryer and she she's down to ace hardware buying tools and gizmos and gadgets and she's got that thing half assembled while i'm out elk hunting mine's the exact same way you know she was so proud because she replaced this part in the washing machine and i said how'd you do it she's like i just watched a youtube video and it's it's all there (laughs) it's, it's all there my son sam 16 he has completely customized his Toyota Tacoma. He Whoa. pulled the entire front of the dash out of there, the whole console. He went out and he took a piece of sheet metal, bent it, cut everything out, re- you know, retrofitted it in to fit into his dash and got this head unit that has a great big like 11-inch display that he can now put navigation on. He can watch videos there in his truck. You know, <laughs> He's put all of these LED lights under the seats and under the floor. He's added all these light bars to his truck. And every single thing that he has done, he's just watched a YouTube video. And it's there. Somebody's done it to the exact same truck he has. And he's just followed the instructions and what they did. And if I would have wanted to do that when I was, I remember trying to wire a simple little cassette tape deck stereo (laughs) in my, I don't remember what year it was, 1987 Chevy S10 truck or something. Uh Uh-huh. 
it's just a black and a red. I mean, that's all it is. And it took me a whole afternoon of troubleshooting to get the right wires hooked up in the right place. Well, you didn't have a YouTube video. We had nothing. There was no manual. There was there was nothing. Yeah, you you went down to the street corner and asked the guy who hawks all those stereos that exactly. get stolen. Hey, how do I put one of these in here? Hey, if I'm going to buy uh, that stereo from you, can you at least tell me how to put it in? Yeah. <laughs> oh well, that's that's just a reality of of what's out there. It's not changing. That you know, technology has never been anything that goes back in the bottle you know yep. as they say the genie's out the first guy who sat around a fire with a piece of obsidian and started napping out tools and broadheads you think he said boy i don't know if this is going to be fair chase wait till i post this to instagram Everybody, <laughs> everybody's going to be making obsidian broadheads yeah <laughs> uh too bad farside still isn't doing cartoons about that i the, <laughs> The visual you just painted yeah. there. <laughs> but technology has been here since humankind. Yep. You know, fire was the first technology, I guess. And then we had things like the wheel and, I guess, hide <laughs> and skins for clothes or something. And then somebody used a stick to dig a hole to plant a seed that grew corn, you know. And, boy, I'm – Look at me! I got I got a new new seed drill. Yeah, it's not on a two million dollar John Deere with you know however many widths of rows it can do. But hey, you had a stick there, and he poked a hole in the ground. Yep. So I that, was, that was quite the advancement from using their finger. And, yeah, you know, so, it's just, we, we've we continue to advance, and yeah. I you know I think we've all sat there when the microwave came out. It's like man, what's next? And then you get convection yeah. ovens, and, <laughs> you know. And we sit there, yeah. and, and I'm sure we're all saying, "What can we possibly come up with that's going to advance technology?" And then you look at AI, right? You know, and and where that just overnight, I, I was blown away on spring break this year when a guy said, "I can I can say write a." 4,000 word essay on Corey Jacobson's elk hunting techniques. Yep. And he writes, you know, types that into chat GPT or whatever it is, and it mm -hmm. spits it out. And it's fairly yeah. accurate as far as exactly what I would do based on, I don't know where it's getting all the information, but it, there is information out there that absolutely overnight was compiled in a way that. We didn't imagine. Yeah. Marcus had a really interesting one that we were talking about the other day. In fact, we, we did a little mini podcast called Fresh Tracks Weekly where we got into this, not as deeply as you and I are, but I, I had asked the crew, I'm like, I wonder what the next big technology change will be that just puts hunting on its ear. And Marcus said, we're not that far away from real-time satellite imagery. Yeah. Would would that be any different than flying? Not with the with the I mean, you can see, you know, on Google Earth 3D, there are people that send me screenshots of a herd of elk that they can yeah. see on Google Earth. You know, of course it's from 2017 or something, but as mm -hmm. that resolution increases as you know, there's already and if somebody wants to search for it, they can find it. I'm not gonna 
going to share exactly what it is, <laughs> but there is aerial imagery that's updated yep. at least every 48 to 72 hours. Mm-hmm. That is, it's not right. high resolution, but for me, shed hunting in the spring, I absolutely yep. go in there and see where the snow line is in the exact place that I want to go into. And you can see overnight when it snows, oh, they didn't get any snow in that drainage or wow, the snow line's all the way down to the river here. And last week it was at 5,500 feet. So yeah, we Mm -hmm. aren't far away from having high resolution, at least daily updated, if not real-time satellite. It's already there. I guarantee you the government's using real-time satellite. (laughs) They can zoom in and see the serial number on the back of the cell phone that I'm using. Yeah, There'll be an Elon Musk type guy who decides, you know what? We need real-time imagery. And somehow they'll come up with it and it'll be affordable and available. Maybe and in our lifetime. And the government will try to stop it because mm-hmm. they're the only ones that want to have it. Yeah. But, you know, so I, I just throw that stuff out there. I, I don't have solutions to it. I just know that as things like that happen, you know, look before that back when granddad was taking his old 38 Nash out there to the trailhead and, you know, slept in the back of the Nash. And then, uh, he, uh, and had, you say Nash, you're talking international. Car. Oh, is that no, different no, than an international? No, there's an old car called Nash. Oh, oh yeah. You were, you, you weren't anybody in Northern Minnesota. If you didn't have a Nash back in really? the 1930s and 40s. Were they the oh, manufacturer yeah. of it? I believe so. Really? The Nash. I don't know. We always, we always called my grandpa's international truck the Nash. And that probably yeah. came from a real yeah. Nash. There's, there's even the Nash Car Club of America. Nash Car. Mm. Yeah. Nash. So there you uh, go. The Nash Car Club. But anyhow, I had that to, <laughs> so, that's a rabbit hole there. Right. So you go out there, you know, and grandpa sleeps there and he maybe has a sandwich or two and he's got his 32 Winchester special or his 3030 or maybe he hawked an old 3040 Craig from a World War One soldier. <laughs> and they weren't real concerned about his technology having a huge impact. Yeah. Because the Nash was a rear wheel drive with some Skinner tires on it, you know, and about four inches of clearance. So, and he didn't, you know, no one had really invented a, a a marketable optic scope, you know, and all all the things we take for granted today. So back then there were zero restrictions. Season dates were like, well, yeah, I guess we can start in September and we'll, maybe we'll shut her down in January. <laughs> you know, look at the old regulations of how long the seasons were. And there were this thing called preference points and draw systems. That's another part of was a response to trying to control harvest or all these other things. So, Well, look at party hunting. There were people that go out and shoot eight elk out Mm -hmm. of a herd and provide everybody on the street with an elk that year. Yeah, it's still legal in Minnesota. Yeah, and so, I mean, that goes back to the restriction on regulations pretty soon. More and more people are going out and shooting eight elk for all their neighbors. So they had to say, all right, you can only shoot one for yourself. And now you have to have a specific tag for it so that, you know, there's there's more regulation. And yeah. yeah it's, it's, I mean, it's advanced so much 
like you said, yeah. the length of the season, the number of animals you could shoot, the, there were no restrictions on weaponry. And now look where we are. As we continue to advance, we can only imagine that regulations and restrictions are going to increase. Yeah. And, you know, the, you talked about the harvest, but then the unrecovered animals. Well, there's a solution Alaska threw out there for bears. If you hit a bear, you're done. Yeah. That that good was looking there. for seeing that. Right. I mean, it's, I'm like sure it's not enforceable, but the, it was <laughs> their response of saying, if we're going to keep this number of harvested animals to this point, yeah, it's hard to enforce, but it'll have some difference without reducing opportunity or access to tag. So, so, so here's a question, though. Uh -huh. As technology improves, yeah. will the number of animals that are lost decrease? So can we handle an increase in success rate because we're becoming more proficient and the overall number of animals that are succumbing to mortality through hunting really isn't changing? Right. I, I think mortality doesn't change because hunters just keep pushing their limits, right? But if I went and grabbed my old, I think it was a Oneida bow that I still have at home. <laughs> what was it, from the Oneida Screaming Eagle? I can't remember what it was, but it's got four Eastern aluminum arrows still. And it's got a one pin, like a post sight. If you shot something that 40 yards, you're like, holy crap, look at that. <laughs> I hit I hit the target out there at forty yards. If you could hold well, it now, back with the thirty percent let right. off long enough yeah. to aim at forty yards. So no matter where technology is at, hunters historically have pushed that. Yeah. And when you push that and you let your skill or your thought of what your skill is exceed what your true skill is. All the technology in the world is not going to change that outcome or the percentage of those bad outcomes. Yeah, there's going to be someone, boy, look, I got them, you know, and there's going to be some that aren't. And so instead of 40 yards being like the edge of anyone shooting, now it's way beyond that. Yeah. Rifles, you know, my dad, if you took a shot past about 150 yards, he's like, what are you doing, man? Yeah. Come on, save, yeah, <laughs> save that ammo. It's expensive, you know, and now... You know, 150 yard shot. It's like, well, I should do that left handed. You know, yeah. uh, just to shoot. I mean, you know, <laughs> so whatever the technology is, I think the human condition is to push it, push what those boundaries are. And therefore, I don't think we'll ever see a change in, you know, unrecovered animals. It's probably true. So that's, I could be wrong. Have we solved anything there, Corey? I'm pretty sure we've just uh, confused everybody and made everybody look at it and go, so what's the answer here? Yeah, the answer is... <laughs> Are you is... saying that non-resident opportunity is going down, weapon restrictions are going to have to increase, regulations going to have to increase? Yes, I yes. mean, how do we counter that? Are we going to have to go out there and find a way to put more animals on the landscape and increase access to public lands? Do you know how hard that is to do, Corey Jacobson? I Dang, don't, wait, but it, just, it seems overwhelming. <laughs> I don't think I'm even going to try. Yeah. No, you're, that's – so, folks, the whole part of this is you always hear us getting back to more animals, more animals, more animals, and that comes down to conservation, advocacy, funding – 
putting your shoulder to the wheel and say, you know what? It's hard work. It's never easy. Someone's going to be mad at you. No matter how, how you advocate, someone's going to be mad at you. It's going to seem like it, an uphill climb every day. Yeah, it's hard. If it wasn't hard, they'd call it golf. And, <laughs> you know, and, and now all the golfers are going to send us emails. And it's, it's, I always say it's never very convenient either. It's always inconvenient, right? Whenever something comes up where you could make some progress or there's an attack on what you love, it's not like it's on your calendar for three years. Oh, yeah, I got to get ready for that event. No. <laughs> it just so. it shows up and here's your chance. Yeah. And how do you do that? The, the most effective way to get the best bang of your time, your effort, and your money is through groups that they got paid people to go do it. So rmef.org, become a member. Say, now it sounds like we're just, you know, plugging a sponsor or something. We're just getting paid to say that. Would we really believe in that if we weren't getting paid to say that? You know, how many people say stuff mm-hmm. like that to us? And it's like, listen. Yeah. yeah. The reason we're partners with them is because we believe 100% in what they're doing. We've seen the fruits, and we want everybody to join us, not because they're a sponsor, but because we we see the writing on the wall here. And without organizations like that, we can't do it alone. You and I can't take our $35 or our lifetime membership, even the $1,500 or whatever it is. That's not going to do a thing. We might get access for five days to go and hunt a piece of private property for that kind of price in an over-the-counter type of a unit, and then we're done. We take that and give it to an organization like the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, and they quadruple. And then they put all of us, all the members, the 20 or 200 and some thousand members of the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, they take all of that, combine it, quadruple it, and go out and make real change. And it's something we can't do on our own. It's something that Man, it's just, I, I wish, I know there's more than 200,000 elk hunters mm-hmm. in, the, in the nation. Yeah. You know, I, I would be willing to go out on a limb and say that there are 200,000 people that have heard this podcast in an episode. Mm-hmm. And I guarantee you not all of them are members of the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. And I really wish we could convince nope. them the importance we'll of that. on it. You know, as my grandma used to say, you can't be a good missionary if you stay in the church. You got to go to the bars and the back alleys. <laughs> she was a great Methodist, devout as can be, and she she was on a mission. And so you and I are, you know, on a similar mission. I I think my, my first membership to RMEF was in 87 or 88. I was at a sporting goods store on Kitsky Lane in Reno, Nevada called Mark Foreign Strike. I don't even know if it's still there, but they had this magazine on the counter called Bugle Magazine. <laughs> I'd never hunted an elk in my life yet. I'm like, wrote down the address in Troy, Montana. Where the heck is Troy, Montana? And I can't remember. I sent like at the time 10 or 15 bucks. I'm like, ah, that's probably a waste of my hard earned college money from working at the sawmill, but I'm going to give it a whirl. <laughs> few weeks later, here comes a card, a membership card, and then a magazine. I'm like, whoa. And then when I moved to Montana, uh, I've been a volunteer and a committee member. Uh, first year I became, I worked 1992. I remember showing up, being on the committee here. And uh, I just 
the the best <laughs> i always like to joke to people that and then they throw this back to me i say you know if you if you were an elk foundation member you'd shoot more elk and they're like well wait a second you said that you were a member for six years is it your first six years you didn't shoot an elk what well i'm i'm like below average so i'm yeah but even so. still you're you're ahead of the curve because most people it's 10 years before they shoot their first elk so yeah even in that you you beat the odds by 40 percent <laughs> Uh, but the point being, folks, is all of this stuff that we get really heated about and we want to argue about, it all comes back to having more elk on the mountain and more access to those elk. Yep. And Army F is doing the best job of any group I know in doing that. So, yep. uh, you want to talk about another topic? Sure. Have we have we ridden that horse far enough for today? I think we got the technology topic pretty well stomped into the mud today. Excellent. Well, I'm going to go and screw on my Luminox and my mechanical broadhead. And... <laughs> yeah, I'm going to do some e-scouting this afternoon with, <laughs> with my terrain analysis tool. So, <laughs> I, you know, anyone who thinks that when we talk about technology that we're somehow saying, oh, we don't use it. <laughs> wrong yeah <laughs> yeah i'm not going back to wearing my converse all-stars <laughs> to hunt elk in and i'm not going to use my jansport book bag as my backpack even though that's what i did when i started but yep. anyhow montana yesterday put out they're only 10 years late in doing it but they finally got around to it an updated elk management plan Mm -hmm. So the current plan we're operating from was adopted in 2005. They started on it in 2003. So 2005, they finally adopted it, and it was a 10-year plan. Well, I, me and a lot of other people have hounded them and hounded them. When are we going to update this? When are, you know, everything's changing out there in the landscape. Land ownership and, uh, you know, predators. Technology. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Technology. Yeah, there you go. Uh, and... Uh, Finally, here we are, 2023, 20 years after the last big go-round on this, uh, we're talking about it. Uh, and we're 10 years late, but I'm going to give the, the Fish, Wildlife, and Parks folks credit that it's not an easy task, especially the way Montana's legislature thinks they all have PhDs in elk management. Uh, <laughs> and... This is, I hope people don't read pages one through 79, Corey. Uh-oh. Because the preface to the Montana Elk Management Plan that's out there has a citation to a lot of the studies I've talked about that I have in my little cheat sheet. Mm. I wanted to call up all those, you know, Julie and kelly and all them say can you guys get rid of all these references can't you just say because i said so you know you don't have to <laughs> reference it to a study about elk displacement elk response to hunting pressure elk response to predation elk response to drought to forage to you guys didn't have to put all that in there you know so so well the good news is it's the preface alone is 79 pages mm -hmm. that's a lot of reading material Mm -hmm. The plan However, is five, I, five. We could just tell Chat GPT to go out there and consolidate the 79 pages into a summary <laughs> of three pages of the information. I, I never mean, even like, thought of that. Man. 
Oh, because here's what I wrote down in my note. I said, page 25 to 70 of the new Montana elk (laughs) management plan are like the Cliff's Notes version of where to find elk and where you won't find elk. Mm. And now you've brought it even chat GPT. You've you've just, you and your technology, look what you've done, Corey. you've, You've made my statement obsolete. You took all my thunder, man. Totally. I I didn't take it. I just pointed to the resource that took it. Yeah. So point of all this is your state probably has an elk management plan. Every state does. (laughs) You know, read it, know what it says, because that's the roadmap they're supposed to follow. Now, our old elk management plan within about two years wasn't even worth the paper that they used to write it on because back then it was written uh it wasn't digital uh (laughs) because within two years the legislature's like oh heck with that heck with that we're not doing this we're not going to follow that we're when we look at objectives we're going to go count the inaccessible elk even if the the plan says we only account the accessible elk so one know your state's elk management plan two be involved in the process when it gets renewed or amended And three, a lot of effort went into that, a lot of compromise. So make sure your politicians aren't forcing your agency to disregard or or deviate from what is in your management plan. Yeah. And And if you live in, like you said, know the plan. And if there's something in there that doesn't make sense, don't think it's locked in forever. Right. Like that's something that, you know, if there, there's things in every management plan that's like, eh, what influenced that decision? Because that doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> and those are things that can be brought up, especially after five years of, of running that plan. When they're looking for a new plan, you, you have a voice to say, listen, yep. this doesn't make sense. And you, the five years of data that you've just ran with this idea show that it doesn't make sense. So let's modify that. Yeah. So here's a little lesson to the listeners. When we did our elk management plan in 2003, I'm going to abbreviate how it worked. The department came out with some suggestions about quotas and, you know, uh, carrying capacity and what the objectives should be. And they cranked it down from what carrying capacity is because they know there's always going to be social pressures and landowner pressures and other things that aren't necessarily biological that say, hey, we can't be at full carrying capacity. So they come out with a number. The hunters say, no, we want a higher number. And then, you know, they go meet with the other stakeholder groups of landowners and outfitters, and everybody's got a different opinion. Hardly any hunters showed up. There were so few of us that we could have all rid to Helena in a Prius, I think. And that's how few of us showed up for this thing. And we got steamrolled. The legislators came in and they lowered those objectives to ridiculous numbers that, you know, if you had one good herd living in some guy's pasture in some units, you'd be over objective. And so point of all that is both for this Montana plan, we have until July 31st to comment. If you hunt Montana, I don't care if you're a resident or non-resident, weigh in on it. And when it gets working through the process here in Montana, hunters have to show up. 
And if you live in a state that is working on an elk management plan or any other management plan, if you don't show up, expect to get your butt handed to you. And don't and they think won't even that draft. a group of five people going up and making a comment on something isn't going to sway the decision oh, it makers. Will. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, you don't look at it and say, well, there's already people there from this group or that group. Five people going into a room with a prepared statement that is intelligent sounding can yeah. absolutely make a difference in the decision, in the indecision. So, yeah. And you and look if, at if, why, why would the legislators make a recommendation to lower the objectives to dangerously low levels? What's, what's the benefit there? Yeah, they just they got some. Uh, there's there's they're, twofold they're, there's more money because they're going to sell more right. tags. So let's get the objective down because, you know, we can sell more tags and kill more elk. And the second one, which is probably the most realistic one, is they've got a good buddy who owns a bunch of land and the elk are damaging his land. So let's kill all the elk statewide to protect my buddy who contributed $350,000 to my campaign last time. Thank Corey. You sound like me. You're getting you're getting pretty riled up here on this <laughs> it, political it's just the side truth. of it. I just I see no? so much political involvement in Idaho in yeah. the last 10, 15 years, mm-hmm. where now yeah. before we had a voice. And you know, I could I could send out an email and say, Hey, get a hold of the contact person in Idaho here and let's shut this down and it would happen. Well, yeah. now legislators, a lot of us, I, I don't mean to paint with a broad brush. There are a handful mm-hmm. of legislators that don't care. They yeah. don't care what the majority thinks. They have a buddy and they're going to push this through no matter what. No matter yeah. what the science, the data, the common sense, the consensus, they're going to mm-hmm. go out and do what they want to do. And yep. that's, a, that's a dangerous place to be, especially in wildlife management when politics gains that kind of confidence in themselves that they're mm-hmm. ignoring the sportsmen, the sportsman's group, the fishing game agencies, and they're doing it for either their own benefit or for the benefit of their buddy, which contributes to their benefit. And you and your friends and your fellow hunters are the resistance to that. Yep. The only resistance. So, yeah. You know, the problem with not 99% of the politicians? The 1%? They give the other 1% a bad name. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I usually say that about attorneys, but I, you know, in Montana, it's known that I'm pretty fair game about picking on politicians of all stripes and, and sides. I, I don't, yep. you know, I don't really care. But point of that is here in Montana, we're late, but, uh, the department, th- this preface to this elk management plan is far more detailed and considers way more variables than the simplified plan we came out with 20 years ago. But the landscape has gotten a lot more complex in 20 yeah. years. Yeah, so there, there are just all these things in there. I give them kudos for that. I hope that they listen to the comments. I hope hunters provide a ton of comments because this is the roadmap that's going to run elk management in Montana for the next decade. And in your state, wherever you hunt, wherever you live, these same kind of things go on periodically. So be involved. Yep. Be there. There's there's a reason that there's the old saying that uh, whatever it is, some percent and 90% of the decisions are made by those who show up. That's the truth. Yeah. 
They're not going to email you, and they're not going to call you on the phone and say, well, what do you think about this part of the elk management plan? <laughs> We're conducting a survey and would like your input. <laughs> no, most of the time, it's, uh, you know, we don't even know about it until it's too late. So, Yeah. Well, all of you, just skip page 25 through 70, and don't, <laughs> don't be going to all those references they're making there about habitat and food sources and migration in response to hunting. Yeah, if I didn't know better, I was almost, I'd almost think you're trying to get people to go there and read that stuff. <laughs> kind of, because that's, it's really good stuff. I mean, if you wanted to learn a ton about where elk are going to be in your hunting season and where they're not going to be, at least in northern latitudes, a migratory herd, the preface to that elk management plan and all the references it makes to those studies, go check those studies out and you'll learn a lot. Yeah. So. So let me ask you a specific question on the Montana elk management uh-huh. plan. Yeah. Do they take into account not just objectives, but huntable populations? Well, that's what we're supposed to do. Yeah, because that's one because thing, you know, I, I had a conversation with our Department of Fishing Game with a couple individuals in it, and I said, listen, we've got, yeah, I know you can fly in the winter and count a very healthy elk herd, mm-hmm. but where do those elk disperse to in the spring and the summer? They aren't leaving those private lands where they go to in the winter. Mm-hmm. Those low right. lands where it's private, where there's good access to feed. Well, now there's good access to sanctuary because of predation mm-hmm. and other issues. But primarily, <laughs> predation has forced the habits of the elk in, in this one specific region to where they're going to hang out close to houses because there's a gun in that house and a wolf knows there's a gun in that house and he's not going to come as close to that house. (laughs) And now the elk aren't going to leave. And so those of us public land hunters are sitting out there on the fence line listening to 15 bulls bugle down in this little drainage that we can't access. And that's where all the elk are. And so I would say, you know, throwing out numbers would be, you know, pointless here, but a very high percentage of those elk that are making, you know, keeping us within objective aren't accessible to hunt. And so the hunting experience and the hunting success rates are going to drop because of that. And the number of elk that are getting killed, we're going to be over objective. So now they're going to say, well, we need to kill more elk. So now the elk that are on public land and accessible are going to get decimated even more and mm-hmm. we're already seeing it. There are areas where I used to find huge populations of elk that the elk aren't even returning to, even on a yep. good year, on a bad year. They just aren't going there. Their habits have changed to the point where mm-hmm. they don't even migrate back up these mountains anymore. Yep. Yeah. So one of the arguments that's going to be in this plan, some sides are going to want to count every elk in the unit accessible or inaccessible because they want to have the highest number possible to say, look, you're over objective. You're over objective. Come in, kill more of these, come in and, you know, help me with game damage or whatever, pay me, you know? (laughs) So they have an incentive to want to count every elk. Yeah. Those of us who hunt the public hunters, we need to demand. We only count the elk that are in what would generally be considered accessible areas. Yeah. Because if there's a trillion elk two miles away and I don't have access to it, it doesn't really, what good does it do? There could just as well be zero elk. There could just from well the be a trillion elk on Mars. 
<laughs> there you go. Are we counting right. them? No. <laughs> that's a good way to think about it. Uh, so that's part of the debate that is going to be there is should we count all elk or only the accessible elk? Yeah. The, the other thing that uh, when you read some of these, so a plan has like possibilities and then a suggestion. Some of the possibilities are keep hammering the cow elk, keep hammering the cow elk in Montana. Well, right now I can shoot so dang many cow elk if I wanted to that, it's like, why even have a limit on it in some places? But it becomes self-defeating because back to what you said, Corey, these elk know where the sanctuaries are. Oh, I'm going to lay under the pivot all summer. Well, we got to issue more cow elk tags. We got to get those numbers down. Well, what cow elk do you suppose get toasted? Yep. The ones up on the public. And now there's just more pressure and more pressure. So the few on the public, where are they going to go? Down to that They're pivot. going, yeah. And now so the, I, the good buddy of the rancher there is saying, there are more elk than before. We need to kill even more. Yeah. So it's, you know, the left hand's not talking to the right hand. Yeah. So there seems to be this mind, this legacy mindset that, well, to kill more elk, we just got to put more pressure on them. Well, some of these studies that are in the preface to this <laughs> elk plan are studies that Montana's own biologists have done to say, you know what? Sometimes more pressure results in fewer elk getting killed. Yep. So the answer then always more cow tags. Yeah. It's more tech, more technology. That's what we need. Yeah. Yeah. My proposal is that if something is way over objective, Fine, give them a lot of cow elk tags for their private land yeah. only. And when they start shooting, those elk, they are, yeah, yeah, they'll be back up on the public, hopefully. I yeah. mean, that's always controversial because people will say, well, you're just catering to the private guy. No, I'm catering to wanting to get, he claims that, that he's got an elk problem. Here, here's some tags. Go take care of it. And yep. push those elk back up onto the private, make them or onto the public, and make them accessible. Elk. Or why not allow the public to come onto your ranch and yeah. fill some of their cow elk tags on those elk? Right now, that, you that, know that opens up more access. That disperses mm -hmm. the elk throughout the unit. Yeah. There is just it's win win. Yeah. Except most of those uh, private landowners just want bull tags for some reason. Yeah. And that's where you really sort out who are those legacy landowners who've yeah. always been, what they've wanted to be part of the solution forever. They're like, yeah, come on, bring those cow tags, start laying them down here, boys. Yep. And then you smoke out who are the guys you're talking about, Gary, yeah. like these new, we here in Montana, we call them the new age landowner, the Wall Street billionaire, the movie star, or whoever it is, <laughs> who's got, you know, a portfolio of Montana elk ranches. Well, he'll complain about too many elk. And when you say, well, you, we got a bunch of hunters who come take care of that for it. Well, no, no, no. I really need some bull tags. Yeah. If How many if the do you want? Well, let me count how many people are here at my kitchen <laughs> table. And, uh... Yeah, my buddy's back in Chicago or wherever. Yeah. yeah. So, folks, if anyone tries to give you a management prescription to control elk numbers by saying shoot more bulls, Hit the BS button. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's not the solution to managing total numbers. So yeah. some will try to pitch us on that, though. But uh, anyhow, I, I, 
if there's a good thing about all this, I think that Montana hunters are are pretty dialed in uh, as far as seeing that we got our butt handed to us when this plan went before. And back to this idea of technology and sharing of information, I look out on my hunt talk forum, how many people are already talking about it and yeah. there's links and they're commenting. And so that's where we can use this, you know, Al Gore's internet. Oh, I'm going to get in trouble again. I'm sorry, Corey. That, that just pops out before. So those of you who are too young, Al Gore at a political event took credit for inventing the internet. So if you were around in the 90s, it kind of became a joke. Yeah, Al Gore invented the internet. It just, I guess it's how I age myself. But anyhow, before Al Gore's internet, send send all your emails to Corey, not me. Uh, but uh, send them to me. But before that internet, it was harder to engage people and get them activated. I remember having a phone tree Right, it looked like yep. a, a bracket for the the sweet you sixteen call these or ten people, and and you call these ten, and you call these ten. Then I, I helped start a a rod and gun club here in Bozeman called Headwaters Fishing Game Association. And when we first started, we had an assembly line. Some persons folding the letters, some persons sticking them in the envelope, another persons licking the envelope, the other persons putting a stamp on it. That's how we got it done. <laughs> back then and now back then <laughs> hit an email yeah well and that's just it i mean we can you know that that phone tree works great to get people on board and let them know what's going on but then what's the next step right oh yeah well i didn't give them the address that they need to put an envelope in the mail to go to their <laughs> legislator because now we literally can go to a website we can say who's my legislator we can find out based on our address who we need to contact for just about any political yep. topic and then we just hit a button that says email them mm-hmm. and i mean there's a lot of times there's a form letter we can email them i mean it's all auto generated it's so easy because of technology to be involved in these issues now that we don't have yeah. an excuse that well i don't know who to contact or my voice doesn't matter yeah, well, that was my point in all that was to say, you know what, this technology is really powerful if we use it for the things that are important for us, important to us. So wait, we didn't it. just we didn't just accidentally land on that correlation. You planned that? Oh, I, I no, thought not, we, I thought not, we had talked about technology and talked about how bad it was for you know hunting and success rates, and then all of a sudden we're talking about this Montana management plan, and it was like the light bulb went off, and it's like, hey, technology is not a bad thing. We can actually use it for good for hunting and counter any of the negative. So, yep. Whether it was yeah. accidental or not, it's it's true. It's true. And if anyone thinks I'm going to go dig out my dad's 3030 Marlin 336C carbine and start hunting elk with that, you're crazy. (laughs) And if you think I'm going to get rid of my high performance technical clothing and go to an old junkie backpack or a fanny pack, you're crazy. So I I just want to clear the air there, Corey. You're you're okay with some advancements. I'm okay with whatever it is. I just accept the fact that you know what? Agencies and the collective society among us as hunters are going to say, ah, we may not, we, we might want to reel that back in a little bit. Yep. And we've been doing that since time began. So <laughs> I'm good with it. 
you know, go and have fun. Don't, right. don't fret the small stuff. Yep. And when you're having fun, think about how that happened, that you can go have that fun and put your shoulder to the wheel, donate a little time, a little money, a little advocacy to the cause that allows us to do all that. Yep. And I if, always say and if, hunting is all about taking. We, we go and we take resources and we've got to look at it as what am I giving back? It's, yeah. it's more than a $30 elk tag. It's yeah. more than a $1,983 Wyoming special elk tag. It, we've, <sighs> we've got to give back and we've got to, we've got to all come together to do that. Yep. Anything else that we got on our podium here, our pulpit, our soapbox, you know, soapbox, whatever you <laughs> want to call it. Soapbox. No, yeah. I, think, I, I think that's been a, you know, we talk about technique and tactics and different things. We share stories, but I think it's important to also get in the weeds once in a while and talk about politics, talk about um, advocacy, talk about involvement and, I think mm -hmm. uh, the technology discussion is a good one. You know, not that it's going away or anything, but to be aware of, hey, there are ramifications, both positive and negative, from mm -hmm. technology advancing in the hunting arena here and, and being aware yeah. of it and how to use it for good and not relying on it because it might be taken away, um, you know, for the benefit of the wildlife. And I think right. at the end of the day, we have to keep in mind our job as hunters is to be stewards of the land and the wildlife. And sometimes that requires us to, to make a sacrifice or give up something that maybe we're comfortable with. And uh, at the end of the day, what's best for them, not what's yep. best for us. There you go. Couldn't have said it any better. What's best for the resource and the future of hunting more than what's best for me yeah. today. And so. we want to be involved. We want to have a hand in it. Oh, we yeah. want to, you know, all of that is important. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying oh, yeah. hey, if they come out and say, well, it's best that you don't hunt. I'll, I'll fight that and argue that because I know oh, yeah, what's I'm, best for wildlife. But yeah, uh, sometimes it does require us to, to step back and say, am I, am I being selfish or am I, uh, am I truly concerned? Maybe even yeah. not just about the wildlife, but about other hunters, my neighbor. Yep. Yeah. Well, when are you guys down in Idaho going to turn on the computer and do the draw down there, Corey? I just, I checked as we started the podcast thinking maybe, I mean, we're halfway through the week today. It's usually in June that it comes out and we've only got two more days of that month left here. So uh, well, my guess is it'll I be Friday. Oh, they do the old, let's do the draw on a Friday, well, turn off the lights and... Let's Head out post for a four-day weekend. Four forty-five on Friday afternoon. Our phones will be busy for fifteen minutes, and then they'll get the message saying, "If you've reached this number, is our office <laughs> everybody's going to be pounding their computer and their keyboard, saying, "How did I not draw? I've put in for seventy-one straight years for this tag. If we only had a point system." Yeah, yeah, you don't want a point system. Nope. Trust me on that one, but. You know, there's these little things that we talk about, like when we talk about Arizona strategy, like they look at the first two choices. <laughs> uh, some guy I know drew a deer tag in Arizona this week, and he used the strategy of, well, your first choice, just swing for the fences. 
Then your second choice, well, you know, something that might be more reasonable. Home run, man. Really? Swung for the fences and got it. Yeah. I think I just barely cleared the right field fence, but <laughs> it's all right. The guy, the, the the right fielder was running back. I got it. I got it. I got it. And he hit the wall. Man. And my ball just dribbled over the top of the fence. <laughs> Landed on top of the fence and yep. made it over. Point being, you know, we talk about all this stuff and we talk about strategies and everything else because these states come up with all these crazy schemes. And like you said earlier in the podcast, you may not like them. And I wish we got rid of all the point schemes, but they are what they are. And they're not going away because they make a lot of money. So... Make sure you you know how they work and and Take use them. Take advantage of them. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Put it. Do do what you can to to increase your odds. I guess is the way yep. I put that. So, but yeah, I know you don't apply for deer because they don't beagle. But well, you know, I I I hunt everything. I'm an equal opportunity hunter, <laughs> but I do give preference to those that make noises. <laughs> Fully understand. I mean, I know deer make noises, and you can rattle them in, you can grunt them in, everything, but it's not near as cool as an elk bugle. No, I love deer hunting, but I completely agree with you. There is nothing I've found yet that compares to a bull elk responding, calling back, walking within about 60 yards and yelling at you, whatever he's saying. You can't even see him, but your body's vibrating, so you know that he's there. If there's anything that tops that in the world of hunting, I've yet to discover it. And I don't know if it's going to top it, but in two days from right now, I'm going to be sitting in 106-degree temperatures in Texas using calls to try to call in access deer. Okay, that sounds like a lot of fun other than the 160 degree. I didn't dial in the weather for it. I just picked the dates for when the deer should be rutting. Oh, that's the deal? That's when they rut? So I got you. You don't have much choice then. And I don't know that it ever really, (laughs) you know, it might be 98 degrees instead of 106. I don't know if that would make a big difference. uh, Well, when you you got 97% humidity. Exactly. And I'm sitting here with uh, snow on the mountains again and been yesterday (laughs) I went outside yesterday afternoon and had to put on long pants and a coat and now I'm going to get off the plane and be like what world did I just step into is there any place you wouldn't travel to hunt animals that call back to you not that I know of (laughs) <laughs> I didn't think so. No, I, I tried. I uh, I was so close to pulling the trigger on going to Kazakhstan to hunt marl, which are elk, right. over there. But uh, found mm. out that bow hunting is not legal there. So you know, we're looking into Mongolia. I know uh, New Zealand and some of those places down there have actual elk herds as well as red stags. So, I mean, I'm I'm starting to broaden my horizons a little bit just because what I know about elk hunting and what makes elk hunting so exciting, I think can mm-hmm. be applied to other species. And I know mm-hmm. uh, things like axis deer and sika deer and fallow deer and red stags. And I mean, even moose, you know, moose, you can call them yeah. moose and they talk, but a red stags roar, uh, a fallow deer, uh, axis deer roar, 
they're it's, uh, I'm not going to say it's as good as elk hunting because I've not experienced it. But from what I've learned, man, it looks to be just as exciting. And it looks like some of them are just as aggressive, if not more aggressive than elk. Well, I've got so much to learn in the world of calling elk that I'll just stick with elk for a while. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm still in kindergarten. <laughs> well, the other good news is some of these animals rut at different times in September. So it's almost like True. you get to extend elk season into right. other months. Yeah, when it's 108 degrees. Yeah, there's, <laughs> you got to sacrifice if you want. Yeah, you well, know, you want to extend elk season into July. Well, it's going to cost you. It's going to be 106 <laughs> degree temperatures. So you've got to deal with. I'm not that tough. Not either. Do you think we've kept them long enough today? Probably so. Yeah, probably so. Anyhow, sorry to get onto this deep, like theoretical discussion, or maybe not theoretical, yeah. actual discussion about all these things but they all none of them are like in their own lane right they're all like this woven fabric where you pull one string and the whole thing can come unraveled yep. so well i'm gonna sit here and hold my breath until idaho posts their results today excellent <laughs> i'm gonna keep the video monitor on here don't you don't go anywhere. Randy and I can see each other in video, so I'm going to stay online here until, uh, until Idaho posts or Randy goes blue in the face, whichever one comes first. Yeah, give yourself about 45 seconds That's there. right. <laughs> uh, well, you have a good week, Corey. You Thanks so much same. for entertaining me. I, uh, <laughs> I don't know what, what, what the audience will think of all this, but uh, given the amount of emails we get, they they must find something in it. We sure appreciate that, folks. Thanks for uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for sending all those emails. It's yeah, good stuff. And thanks for coming up and saying hi to us at the uh, Total Archery Challenge in Big Sky. There were a bunch yeah. of you that cornered us and said hi. And uh, I think both you and I will be at the Total Archery Challenge in Utah the what third weekend in July or something, twenty first, twenty second, somewhere in there. Yeah, yeah, whatever that weekend is. So. I uh, yeah. I'm going to be there. Yeah. So if any of the listeners are uh, going to be there as well, come by and say hi. Yeah. Take care, folks.